women's eyes the world. Welcome to episode 10 in a series of podcasts from the Women's IP World Annual. I'm your host, Michelle Katz, and I'm the co-founding partner of the law firm Advitum IP, which in Latin means intellectual property for life. We are based out of the U.S. in Chicago. Me and my firm, we are hosting this podcast on behalf of North Ends Media PR and Marketing Limited based out of the U.K. and London. They are the publishers of the Women's IP World Annual and the Global IP Matrix Magazine. The 2021 Women's IP World Annual can be found digitally at www.womensipworld.com. Again, that's www.womensipworld.com. And you can listen to the annual as well on your favorite podcast app. Now that some IP conferences are back in person, also keep an eye out for hard copies you might find there as well. Today, I'm very pleased to be speaking with Claudette Verneau the founder of the law firm, I'm going to try to see if I can get this right, Estrategia Juridica in Colombia. Bienvenida, Claudette. It's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, let's start with your firm name. Um, I guess I'm going to try this again and see if I can get it two for two. Estrategia Juridica. Can you tell us the significance of your firm name and how you came up with it? Yes, uh, thank you, Michelle. Good morning and uh, happy to be here with you. And uh, Estrategia Jurídica, you pronounce it perfectly, so good for that. And it means, Thank you. <laughs> it means legal strategy. And uh, when I found a law firm, I just wanted to find uh, a word that will uh, meant the strategies that a brand holder needed to be needed to produce in order to have a good brand protection program in in Colombia. So it came to my mind that legal strategies will tell you everything about uh, what a client needs in, in all fronts. Because when you face counterfeiting, I mean, you, you don't need only to fight the fake product, but you need to have a strategy for your client in all regards, marketing, sales, contracts, everything. So I think that was the idea. So here, now we are here uh, 20 years later and uh, it works pretty good. So you founded your firm 20 years ago already? Yes, yes, that's correct. Yeah. Wow. Does it feel like that time has really flown? Oh, yes. I mean, it feels like, you know, like it was yesterday. I mean, it's 20 years of learning uh, also from, uh, from clients, from authorities, from agencies, associations. So I think it, it has been like a very, very good years. And we're still we're still learning, right? My firm is coming up on ten years, and I feel like while wow, we've 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 we're established, there's still more to learn. Exactly. Yeah, I think it's that's a good thing. I mean, that we are not static. I mean, we we go up and on according to the legislation, to the new trends of what's going on with uh, counterfeiting. Uh, we have authorities projecting the new standards and trends of uh, criminal organizations and how to fight. So, yes, it's a permanent learning and we have to move on. And 
technology move on, so we have to move on at the same speed. <laughs> we try, don't we? We definitely try. Um, let's go back a little bit. I know that um, you speak French fluently as well as Spanish, English, and Italian, and you studied law in Paris. And your friend, and your name is French. Can you um, tell me what your connection is with France? Oh yes, uh, it's interesting. My my grandfather uh, was French, and uh, he used to work in the army, and uh, he was transferred to Bogota to work in the commercial department with the French embassy. And once he was there, he was he met my my grandmother, and they got married, and that's how my dad was also born in Paris, but then they moved back to Bogota. Winter was very difficult at that, uh, at that period of time. I'm, I'm talking about the 1900s. And uh, my grandmother was not used to the, to the winter, so she lost three babies. So after the four, she decided to move to Colombia and to don't give a chance. And thank God, because she moved to Colombia to have babies and... And my dad was born. So lucky for her to make the decision. She didn't like winters. Okay. So your so your your grandmother learned French. And then did you grow up in a bilingual home with with French and Spanish? Yes, my dad uh, my dad uh, of course spoke French fluent and uh, he was born uh, in uh, in Colombia and then moved back and forth to France at that period of time was of course, complicated the the travels, but so they tried to travel two years and uh, then move back to Colombia. So yes, we we had the chance and opportunity to to have French in our home, and then we study in the French school. And then once I finish uh, my law degree in Colombia, I decide to to do some studies in Paris. I mean, hard to say that you, you can study in Paris. I think you get a diploma. <laughs> and, uh, oh, yeah. I, under, I understand. I have done some study, some quote-unquote study abroad in Paris exactly. as well. And, this, and the south of France, actually. <laughs> yeah, I have to believe yeah, that yeah. you can study in the south of France. <laughs> but yes, I have a diploma and uh, I have a lot of fun in Paris, so I cannot complain. <laughs> That's wonderful. And um, all the languages, and I know you're passionate about um, language and, and you learned Italian as well, more you know, as for for your own um, like personal desires, is that right? Yes, I had the opportunity to do a, a diploma in in Rome. So I always think that it's important to learn the language where you are going to spend at least three or four. In this time, I spent six months in Rome, and. Um, it was not as fun as in Paris because I stay in a convent, even believe it or not. <laughs> it's in Rome? in Rome. In Rome, you were staying in a, yeah. in a convent. Oh, that it, must have been quite an experience. Yeah, the the, the sisters were the Suore Oblate de Divino Amore, and it was a, quite an experience because they were they were fun. You know, they were drinking wine and having good meals, and they even allow me to go out at night. They would give me the secret key of the door on the back of the convent. <laughs> And I was, they didn't have a driver for a while. I think what four, four or five weeks without a driver. So they said, hey, Claudia, do you drive? I said, yes, I drive in Colombia, so I can drive everywhere, you know? And yes, I mean, it's true. You drive in Colombia, 
I mean, be ready. You can do whatever you want in any other country. So I was the, the designated driver for the nuns for a while. Oh, that's that's incredible. Oh, well, so it's a win-win there. So it sounds like you did have fun in Rome after all. Yes, yes. Of course. Not crazy <laughs> things, but I had fun. <laughs> yes, yes. Doesn't have to be crazy to be to be a good time. Yeah. Um, that, that, that's great. And so then eventually, you know, you, you were working in Colombia, working at other law firms, and you started your own law firm. And from my understanding, a big focus of your practice is on anti-counterfeiting, correct? Yes, that's correct. And when, when I started my practice, uh, I thought that there was not uh, criminal actions uh, instituted although we had the law that uh, permitted to fight against counterfeiter. But it was like a, I would say, like a land that was not being explored. Uh, I don't know why. I mean, I, I guess it's because it was difficult and uh, the region, the geographic areas where all these tribunals are, are located are not nice neighborhood. So I think it was just a question of not being... Um, uh, how I would say uh, intrepid, if it's that a word in English? <laughs> yes, yes, it sure is. So, yes, uh, I, I, I start to put together a plan for a brand holder at that period of time. I mean, I met him that say in January and in February I said, look, let's do criminal because the, the, the brand was having a huge problem all over the country. I mean, they were saying something like, a pay one, get six. So you can imagine the problem of for a brand when, when you have that type of advertisement. So we did a very aggressive program at that period of time. I'm talking about uh, 99. And it was a huge success. Of course, it took us a while. And that's what sometimes when the brand is so affected by counterfeiting, you need time. But also, if you have a good brand protection program, it's feasible. I mean, you have just to be patient and understand that you cannot, like, you know, take the, the sky in two hands with the two hands in, in a second. But uh, I think that after four years, we clean up the market. It got a good license uh, in Colombia where they start to manufacture with the, this license agreement. So we did the complete work and now the brand is, I would say, completely clean. So, so we're going back to 1999, okay? And criminal intellectual property is what you're talking about. Yeah. Actually going against counterfeiters in a criminal, not civil manner. So what were the, penalty, what were the penalties you were seeking at that time? Well, I'll, I would say that at that time, the, the penalties were not, so significant in connection of uh, prison that uh, sometimes you look prison for these people and it's not possible but uh, we were able to to find uh, damages payment of damages especially because the counterfeiters were like huge companies abroad uh, there were uh, people from different countries investing in companies in Colombia and they were they had assets they had assets in Colombia so what we did at that period of time is um, freeze assets and uh, it was interesting because we found very good prosecutors uh, that there was, of course, this, this was like a new topic for them. 
but was also very interesting because it was a lot of money laundering. And we had, I mean, for tradition, very strong laws on money laundering. So I think uh, also the fact of criminal was not, as you mentioned, was not something common at that period of time, uh, at least in, in Colombia, because the criminal law was more used for other type of, of crimes. And as you know, in Colombia, money laundering and uh, criminal organization has been like for years in, in Colombia. So we found, uh, especially there was a group uh, from abroad that was doing money laundering with those assets. So I think that was uh, key for our good results. And also was interesting as a woman to work on the criminal part because uh, at that period of time, on IP at least, we didn't have women doing criminal actions. And it was, I will not say it was dangerous, so uh, I will say it was just complicated uh, to do it. But uh, we start to create a, a, big, uh, a big and strong team of lawyers and we start to, to do trainings a lot to authorities, so they will have knowledge of what was IP. Of course, IP was not something that will be recognized by authorities. So we thought that the good plan was to start from scratch, and it's what we did. We did a lot of trainings in all cities, in all authorities. We did customs, we did judicial police, we did civil police. So we cover all the authorities. And once we put that in place, we we moved to ports. So you basically wrote the manual on uh, the training of government officials, right? The, the customs, the police, right? Um, the protectors, so that they would understand intellectual property. Uh, but specifically, what do counterfeit products look like? Yeah, I think... Uh... I think, yes, I think it was a, a program that we put in place and we thought no one is doing it. And, um, and it's, for us, the authorities is, is the, the structure of your building. I mean, if you don't have the collaboration of, of the different agencies and authorities, you cannot build a brand protection program. So we educate them and at the same time, not only on the brand, because we thought that for them it was very interesting to have knowledge on IP in general. I mean, uh, the, the distinctions between trademark, industrial design, the distinction of uh, how to operate uh, in a seizure, what they have to do, how to produce uh, the evidence for a, for a case to don't contaminate the evidence and all that. So those, those were factors that authorities didn't know at that period of time. So I think we, we had very good success. And uh, even now, as when we mentioned about studying and uh, learning, we continue to teach uh, the authorities. And not only us, but we bring experts. For example, we bring experts on illegal trade people that really know how to handle complicated investigation on transnational crime. And it's how we want a government official to understand that we have tools uh, that we can provide to them for the jobs. And that's fascinating because now we take all of the, these procedures you know, for granted. 
We're going to take a quick break and we'll talk about um, more of this topic when we're back. We have now started the candidate research process for the Women's IP World Annual 2022. The Women's IP World Annual is the industry's number one intellectual property law publication that celebrates the work and achievements of professional women working in IP, IP law, and innovation globally. We are very proud to provide a platform for women working in intellectual property and innovation by shining a spotlight on their expertise and professional knowledge in their respective fields of operation in IP through engaging thought leadership content. Our annual publication has caught the eye of many IP associations from all over the world. More importantly, it has attracted a cocktail of awe-inspiring, knowledgeable women who are happy to share their professional and personal experiences of working in the industry. Our unbiased approach welcomes large to boutique law firms and female industry professionals at all levels to join our network of remarkable women from all over the world. The famous American journalist and women's rights advocate, Miss Sarah Margaret Fuller Osselai, once said, If you have knowledge, let others shine their candles in it, and we couldn't agree more. Contact us today if you would like to nominate a candidate to join the Women's IP World Annual 2022 or if you would like to personally share your knowledge, inspire and be inspired. You can contact us on plus 44 0203 813 0457 or email us at info at womensipworld.com. For more information and to check out the latest issue of the Women's IP World Annual, please go to www.womensipworld.com. The Women's IP World Annual, the industry's leading publication that celebrates the work and achievements of women working in IP, IP law, and innovation globally. The Women's IP World Annual 2022 is sponsored by Patent Seekers in the United Kingdom and Lexorbis in India. So, welcome back. Uh, I'm not I'm not done with this topic yet, Claudette. I'm just so fascinated that, you know, back in the, you know, late 90s, um, early 2000s, they're just they're, these procedures didn't exist. They weren't being they weren't being utilized. Did did the law only support these criminal actions because of its connection to how the money was used, i.e. money laundering? Or did you have to lobby to actually get the laws to cover uh, criminal counterfeiting? Well, the law existed as a trademark infringement. The contraband existed. What we didn't have at that moment was the, ch- the chain of distribution covered, like we do now. Like, for example, the storage person, uh, the transportation. We didn't have that, but we we do we did have the trademark infringement per se which means that i will arrive to a premise with a counterfeit product and i will be able to seize the product i could not for sure um, seize the 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 truck with product but the authorities could do it ex officio without a complaint so more and more the counterfeiters are sophisticated more and more the legislation it's getting better because, as you know, for example, on online, we didn't have nothing. And now we have a lot of activities that we can continue to do on online because uh, that's how the law evolved. And Colombia, by I think by tradition in the region, 
I would say that we have been pioneer on legislation on IP. And I think that's why our economy also is a good economy, because we have strong laws for investors, for example, and protection of their investment. So I think that uh, that was the, the, the main issues we were able to do it. I mean, and as, and as you mentioned, not necessarily targets connected to transnational crime or money laundry were attacked. I mean, we're able also to, to attack small counterfeiters and, you know, with small premises. And uh, by then, I remember that most, most of the issue that we had was the interpretation of judges and prosecutors as they're doing their job. I mean, they're trying to maintain their families and they are coming and, you know, and you are seizing. So it was a complete plan of awareness and teaching that, yes, we want these people to produce and to, you know, get well with their business, but not through assets from other companies. So one of the brands allow us to implement a program to teach counterfeiters on IP, which I, I will say that at that period was very innovative. And uh, was, I still think that might be a novelty. And I was like crazy. I mean, these people are teaching the counterfeiters how to create brands. And yes, we did. We said, look, this is the brand that you cannot touch, but you can create your brand. How you create your brand, you hire someone creative, what type of product you want to protect. And then you have a trademark office, which is very strong and very good in Colombia. And uh, they even have an analyst and a person that would recommend to you if they can or not register a specific brand. They would say, hey, you cannot because when we do the search of uh, presence, you found uh, very close brands to the one that you, you want to create. So we did that for a year and uh, several counterfeiters create their own brand and forgot completely about the brand of uh, our client. And now they are very famous brands and very good brands so I think it's a question of education and I think I'm a serious believer on education even if you have to educate the bad guys sometimes uh, sometimes you have and you can achieve good results wow that's it's that's pretty mind-blowing I think and and for the listeners too to actually educate quote-unquote you know the bad guys the ones you're trying to stop especially in the counterfeit a lot of you know, a lot of the money that's recouped from from counterfeit purchases, right, goes to bad things. Yeah, I, I think education is an issue. I remember, I mean, I, I know that it's a good faith and bad faith in law. And when counterfeiters argue uh, good faith, I don't know, I think sometimes uh, you... You can believe that it's a good faith activity, that they, people are so ignorant sometimes and they don't have press, they don't have internet. I mean, and we had a case long time ago. I mean, and they were, they were doing soccer balls with a very famous brand, but there was a very tiny town. I mean, that would say like, these people don't even have internet. And they're doing soccer balls because someone came here and asked them to do it. So let's mm-hmm. let's pursue the person that 
ask them the work, but not them because they said brand. What's a brand? What's a trademark? Oh, is that protected? Mm -hmm. And you knew because you had them face to face that seriously, I mean, they were giving you the truth. So let's let's chase in those cases the really uh, bad guy and not the person that used to, I mean, is used for the for the activity. I will not say that's always the case. Yeah, right. Exactly. So as you go up the chain, right? Exactly. So this, you know, that community was at the bottom of the chain. Yeah. Right? Not was, knowing the business, exactly. you know, they were just given it. Right. So, and I, and I see, and I see that and, and, and it's amazing that you were able to, you know, clean up. So I think that was the words you were using, clean, clean up um, the counterfeit activity for, for your clients. Um, that's, you know, that, that's a great, that's a great achievement. So, you know, I, I think back to what it must've been like, you know, being a, you know, one, being a woman attorney where there, you said that there weren't a lot of women attorneys in criminal practice. And that also, um, you know, as far as criminal law even being used for counterfeit. So that, I mean, did you, did you get, did you feel pushback at that time for your efforts? Well, I, I think that uh, it's right. I mean, there were not criminal lawyers doing IP. I mean, I think uh, I was the only one by, back then in Colombia doing that. And uh, I think it was, was difficult because when you arrive to the police department, uh, I mean, and you are a woman, they look at you like, okay, what do you want? I mean, how, what are you, what are your expectations? And but I think it's a question of management of how you interact with uh, with government officials. I mean, with respect to don't impose. Uh, you know, some lawyers try to impose because they are lawyers, and uh, so I think we are all human beings and we have to treat each other equally. And without like you know a structure like you know I'm in top and you are down, but just make them believe that uh, we are help. We are looking for help. And at the same time, they need statistics and they need results. So it's 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 a exchange, I would say, of uh, skills, and that at the end we will all have uh, results, uh, positive results uh, in our own field. So I think yes, it was difficult, but at the end we had very good results. We have to go to places that I'm pretty sure uh, people don't know that they exist. Neighborhoods, complicated neighborhoods with a lot of security issues. We, for example, we hire at that period of time a cameraman to have videos on locations and they don't want to go as soon as we give the address. I don't know, I imagine it's like downtown Chicago or places in Chicago that I imagine no one wants to go. It will be the mm -hmm. same in Colombia, say, no way. I don't know about downtown. I'm not sure about downtown, but I know exactly what you mean. Yes, exactly. of course. Mm -hmm. So uh, at the end, uh, you know, it was very complicated, I mean, to put together all that because we needed to report on video what was going on and, and the results. I think clients are very visual. And when you explain to them the insecurity of your country, they'll say, oh, Again, you know, I heard that story before. <laughs> but when when they see that in a video, 
I mean, they say, oh my God, yeah, it's complicated. So all that to explain that we cannot do a raid in less than 30 days. I mean, we have to work more and we have to plan security for everyone. So it's not uh, as easy as doing a raid in a shopping mall in, in Miami or something like that. <laughs> no, and so it sounds like your, you know, Estrategia Jurídica really has worked, um, you know, in, in, in such an impactful way. And so would you still, would you say that Colombia is still a hotbed for, for counterfeiting? Yes, I think the geographic area in Colombia put Colombia as a very important hub for transportation to the south of uh, South America. And also the close, we are so close to Panama and uh, Miami that counterfeiters um, are used to have this channel of distribution uh, set up as a strategic plan for them. So yes, I mean, geographically make us in a position that counterfeiting has to go through Colombia for sure. What other hotbeds uh, areas around the world um, exist, do you think, for the trademark falsification and counterfeiting? Well, I would say that Panama is one of the biggest ones. I would say that sometimes through uh, on the south, Paraguay and Uruguay is also important countries, even if they are small countries, that doesn't matter because the, the product enters through those, through those countries. So I think uh, that South America is, is a huge uh, hub and we have a lot of ports. Um, our main idea, for example, this year is work on free trade zones through INTA and uh, to establish some of the awareness programs and trainings in those areas because Panama is one of the, has one of the most important free trade zones and uh, it's incredible what a brand holder can suffer on, on that area. Hmm. What about with COVID-19? Uh, has the pandemia had a big impact on counterfeiters' efforts and also on, on your efforts? Yeah, I think that uh, the pandemia has, I would say, like a slow motion activity, but... Uh, Obstacles that we had became opportunities in the fact that we continue to train virtually. We never stop. I think uh, perhaps it took us like two or three months of standby before we set up a program uh, on ports and uh, we start to communicate with clients. And clients were more uh, open and they were ready to participate. I think uh, we got a lot of uh, uh, involvement of clients that we didn't have before because lack of time. But uh, I mind that everybody were with, in standby on traveling, so we had a lot of participation. And I think that was really good because uh, uh, authorities were able to see face-to-face uh, the brand holder. And I think was that was important. That was something like... Um, in the point of view of customs and authorities in Colombia, they like to see the brand holder. They like to know that they exist, 
and they take time for them at least to explain something. So we couldn't do the trainings directly, but we would really like to have brand holders participate directly. I think that's that's something that really called the attention of, of, of the authorities in Colombia. I don't know how that works in other jurisdictions, but in Colombia it's very important to see face-to-face the person. So with the pandemic, though, face-to-face was not possible. Weren't there restrictions to have no. these face-to-face meetings via Zoom or other like other video method? Yeah, fa- when I say face-to-face, it's uh, virtually, sorry. Ah, okay, okay, yeah. So that so they so face to face meetings were still happening, but virtually, virtually, just not just not in person. So that there wasn't a big slowdown. I mean, maybe initially, but initially, initially it was a slowdown, and then we start to have and receive reports from from the main ports on activities on products. So they will help us uh, send in pictures of the product, uh, bill of ladings, and we will confirm with clients the legitimacy of those products, the documentation, and we continue to work. I mean, I, I would say it was slow a little bit, but we never stopped working, So, which I think is good because, I mean, the, the crime doesn't stop in pandemias. So yeah. no, no, it just finds new ways to um, new 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 ways to appear. Exactly. So, so we did a lot of online also work, and mm-hmm. uh, which was the trend. But we never forgot about the ports, and of course the the, the retail and commercial establishment were closed. So that part was closed completely. But as soon as they reopened, we start also our work because all these people had in stock fake probe and so we don't stop so a message to the listeners definitely check out the article uh written by claudette it's it's about trademark falsification anti-counterfeiting it's a great read page 27 of the annual um definitely check that out please it's it's really informative um claudette thank you for being my guest on the podcast today. Um, it was just such a pleasure to to learn from you, to meet you and learn about your background. Just really fascinating story. Uh, and the work you're doing, you've really made quite an impact. Thank you, Michelle. Happy to be here with you and sharing experience and uh, happy to, to see you again in Washington, maybe next year. <laughs> I look forward to that. I really do. Um, to our listeners, please like, follow, share with your friends and colleagues, but also feel free to send comments and questions. Until we do connect in person, um, take good care, everyone. Women's been listening to the Women's IP World Annual Podcast, hosted by Michelle Katz from Advitum IP in Chicago, on behalf of Northern's Media PR and Marketing Limited.